Welcome to another episode of the Short Forms, small summaries of big topics. Today I'll bring you a short history of totalitarian structures, from small to large, ancient to current, why some are necessary, most are bad, and what you can do about them. So, what is a totalitarian structure? Let's look at the many synonyms. It is a dictatorship, a tyranny, a fascist regime. It is oppression, despotism, authoritarianism, and autocracy. The meaning in plain terms is best described by recounting the origin of the word fascist. It comes from the word fasces, which were Roman-era status symbols and weapons, poles bound together around an axe. Men in charge carry the ceremonial versions, while gate guards held the larger, deadlier ones. The situation was this. A few powerful men or a solitary man would be inside the gates, deciding the fate of the city around them. You, a citizen of the city, want to get inside to voice your opinion. The guards at the entrance would lower their fasces across your path to block you, and if you tried to force your way through, to kill you. And here we have the essence of fascism. They are inside, you are kept out. They are making decisions that affect you, which you have no say in. That's how this term grew to describe not just what they carried, but what they did. They abused their authority through a mixture of secrecy, segregation, and threat of force. In doing so, creating fertile breeding grounds for corruption and cruelty. Abuses which, surprisingly, need not even emerge from malice, but from the very isolation that the structure creates. You may be wondering now, where would such an awful structure come from? Mean people? Space aliens? Evil incarnate? Well, it turns out that it comes from a much simpler place and out of necessity. The family. Why so? Because when we're born, humans are especially incapable of surviving alone for the first several years of our lives. We need parents to decide for us, to tell us what to do and provide for us, often against our wishes, but for our own good. Otherwise, we'd probably starve, get eaten, fall injured, or die in, in countless ways. The younger we are, the more that parent needs to dictate our lives. It's true today, and it was especially true in the distant, more primitive past. Now, the one caveat in this situation, and this is critical, is that as we mature, that need fades away. Problems arise when this structure persists beyond the need. For example, this can be when a parent makes decisions which are of no benefit to the child, or when a parent abuses their child, or when a parent otherwise imposes their authority after the child has clearly matured. This structure and its pitfalls range from a single child and parent all the way up to clans and dynasties. And when certain clans and dynasties become more powerful than others, we arrive at the interfamily version of this family structure, the intrinsically flawed system of rulership called the kingdom. In this system, the people of the domain are treated as children, and the king's family, the royal family, are treated as the parents. The king himself, he's treated as kind of like a, a supreme parent. All the decisions are made with him and cast down outward throughout the entire kingdom from him. While there could be in this vast system of dictatorship, the same kind of caring, teaching, and recognition of maturity that can occur in a single family, the chances of this are too slim. The king and his kingdom are not related, there is no parental bond, no recognition of maturity, 
and no way for the king to even hear the concerns of his entire kingdom. The potential for abuse is extreme. However, as time drew on and the inbreeding of royalty took greater tolls, kings and kingdoms have largely been replaced by ministers and presidents from other gene pools leading the next form of wide area society, the nation. Nations have a greater potential for avoiding fascism, but as yet, for the most part, this potential has not been realized. Some current nations are reportedly democratic, some are openly autocratic, and most all are dysfunctional mixes of the two. Regardless to the degree to which some nations offer sprinkles of democracy, they still for the most part utilize the same tired structures of fascism that caused so much trouble in the past. But for some, even that is not a deterrence to try to scale the structure even larger. When kingdoms and nations combine, they form the largest fascist structure known to man. Empires. These have been responsible for some of the most widespread abuses ever recorded because, well, they cover so much area. The empire is sort of a holy grail of totalitarianism. It can cross borders and span the globe, blanketing the entire known world in a single oppressive force. It is this level of fascism that realistically hopes to attain world domination. But strangely, an empire is also a fragile thing. It can crumble as fast as it forms. Most empires based around territory have suffered this fate. In a minute though, I'll explain a couple which haven't yet collapsed. Empires based around intangibles. Remember again that in these vast societies, even a well-meaning ruler is doomed to subject his or her people to oppression, cruelty, and suffering. The dictator need not be evil, though that certainly speeds the process. The main thing is, the larger the number and stratification of people, the more extreme our isolation in these systems become. Whenever too many or too few people share the same space with one another, disparity arises. On a personal level, this leads to feelings of loneliness, indifference, paranoia, and so on. On a societal level, these feelings usher in the acts of fascism and tyranny. Now that we've discussed governance, let's quickly highlight two other tyrannical ingredients of society, military and education. Military is obviously a totalitarian structure, very openly so. It is debatable whether this makes the organization more or less effective because it depends on what you consider effective. If you define that as being a horde with which to inflict mass slaughter, then you would argue yes. If, though, you'd call effectiveness the ability to peacefully and quickly extinguish conflicts and invasions, the answer would have to be no. Educational institutions are also totalitarian. Again, this is out of the necessity of instruction, but also, again, this can't scale well through all maturity levels. The amount of freedom does increase as a student rises through college. However, their level of democracy does not. Maturing students should have an increasing say in their learning experience. This lack of dialogue makes pedagogy far less effective for all but a few people. The next two I'm going to lump together. Not because they are the same, but because they interrelate in a unique way. And because they both pose the greatest modern threats to the human conditions of freedom and democracy. And by that, I mean real freedom and democracy, not the myths perpetrated by the neocons and such. Anyway, they have repeatedly perverted and dismantled democratic structures from the inside out and the outside in. They are the two largest totalitarian structures that persist today. They're religion and business. Like other social structures gone wrong, these likely started out as kind-hearted efforts to take care of others in the community, but were co-opted by the selfish and power-hungry. 
business allows people to specialize in growing one kind of food, or providing one kind of service, or making one kind of widget. Trade allows these products to be available in exchange between members of the community, and money allows trade to continue while seasonal barter goods are not practical. Religion aims to put assurance to unanswerable questions and standardize lifestyles in a hopefully positive manner. In its various forms, it advises people to cope with misfortune, gather frequently, and follow a set of hopefully wise practices. And some forms encourage people to treat each other fairly, seek enlightenment, and better themselves in their community. But as I said, they haven't stayed so beneficial to all. And in doing so, they've even added their own twist to the fascist method. While kings and other dictators of state primarily direct people's fear, awe, and servitude toward themselves, the leaders of religion and business, however, cast themselves as worthy agents of a greater imaginary entity, an ethereal parent. And that is the object to which they direct people to pledge some of their strongest emotions. It is a parent that cannot be involved in argument or conversation, that cannot be punished, slain, or even fully understood. The parent is whatever the preacher or CEO tells us it is. So while the public's attention is clouded by whatever they imagine this entity to be, the priest or the banker is then free to dictate as they please. It allows extremely powerful men to portray themselves as not so powerful, merely humble servants who pass on the word of God or the direction of the company, those elusive parental mirages that are said to hold the answers to all of our worries. For religion, it is the promise of life after death, interconnectedness, and a clear conscience. For business, it is the promise of material wealth, trust in trade, and the welfare of loved ones. But for these promises to ever deliver, and in the case of death, we have no way of knowing if they have, the public must do things, often terrible things, in order to stay on good terms with these imaginary parents. These structures transcend every social structure, including each other, operating as sort of meta-empires. They cross borders of all nations, states, towns, and villages. They take root in families of all types, individuals from every culture. Preachers may affect economists, and vice versa. But in every case, commands are uttered from the mouths of the high and mighty to be solidified in contracts, bibles, and brutal actions. What they say is what you must do, or suffer now, and possibly forever, banished from their all-powerful imaginary parent. It is by no mistake that the leaders of nations have aligned themselves with the powers of business and religion. When nationalism is mixed into the fold, you can cover the entirety of all we might fear. You can tell people that not only their home is threatened, but also their possessions, profession, community, and beliefs. You've got them lock, stock, and barrel. For example, if people believe that they and their children will go to heaven if the nation sends them to die in war, they're much more likely to let that happen. What's the difference between that and being sent on a suicide mission? Not a whole lot. Business and religion are major persisting forms of modern international fascism and tyranny. And the really dangerous part is, most people don't even consider them to be so. They've been brainwashed by the new royalty into taking it all for granted. That, well, that's just the way the world works and there's nothing they can do about it. Wrong. We can and we must do something about these legally sanctioned authoritarian regimes. They are already sending us into a modern dark age, a dystopia worse than our bleakest dreams. These modern kingdoms have wormed their way into the inner workings of nearly every nation, feeding off people, policies, and politicians like a tumor. Dictatorships and democracies alike are influenced by religion and purchased by business. 
In time, the desires of their lobbyists are the only voices that a nation's leaders will listen to and take action for. They need to be stopped and replaced with viable alternatives. What kind, you ask? Well, fascism is not the only way societies have formed. Structures based around voting consensus, flattened hierarchies, diversified authority, and autonomous cooperation have been invented, reinvented, and cultured throughout human history. The problem is, most of these open structures, which haven't been broken or corrupted, have remained as they've started out, small in scale. Often, they aren't found in groups larger than tribes and villages. Why is that? Well, let's examine these groups. Tribes are often used to describe transient societies, while villages usually mean that people stay put. But both share two qualities. They're fairly small, and around the world these communities have come up with a variety of governance methods, many of which are the beneficial structures that I mentioned. One of the reasons why open societies can persist in a small tribe or village has to do with a bit of biology. Studies have shown the human mind is only capable of easily recognizing and regarding a maximum of around 150 people. People that fall beyond those numbers, and this doesn't have anything to do with how nice the person is, they just won't matter as much. They don't seem as real to us. Because this limitation is also found to be present in monkeys, it is sometimes called the monkey sphere. So if you're living in a village of 50, even 100 or so people, they fit within your monkey sphere. You'll be able to remember, know, and empathize with each and every one of them. If you live amongst hundreds or thousands of people, you can't. They just don't fit inside your monkey sphere. Most of them will just be strangers to you. This limitation affects everyone, from me to you, to chiefs to kings to congressmen, from janitors to CEOs, and from the police to the Pope. Because of this trait, if democratic structures are to succeed untainted when scaled up to the populations of modern societies, they need to be comprised of these monkey sphere-sized groups, and these groups need to be collaborating with each other, like cells in your body. It is how we should plan all of our communities, whether it's a collection of buildings or a social website. Also, a major key to undoing totalitarian abuse is to thwart their power in the same manner they've infected democracies, by starting democratic structures inside them. Unions, for instance, provide workers a say in the conditions dictated by their business fascists. Public product ratings allow customers to voice their concerns about products and services that are being promoted to them. Co-ops are a kind of business model that are based around the democratic process from the ground up. In their purest form, every employee votes, every employee earns the same wage, and every employee has equal ownership of the business. If they stay small and cooperate, that's infinitely sustainable. These are a few of the many empowering structures that you can use to replace fascist empires. Please find out more about them. Join them, create them, use them to make our world a better place. So now that you know what these totalitarian structures are, you can hopefully realize that the vast majority of people have grown beyond the need for them. As children, we need the family structure, but this structure does not work well beyond raising children. As mature human beings, we need social and societal structures that recognize maturity and work within our monkey sphere limitations. We need interconnected community clusters that provide equal say in our own fates, where our voice is welcomed and utilized. We need these structures to be pervasive in every realm of society, in governance, in trade, education, and production, in discovery, cultivation, and every other arena where fascism can be harmful to us. No one should have the fasces lowered before them, 
stopping them by fear, by death, or by secrecy from participating in their own society. There are many ways to put fascism in check, and there are better structures to build societies upon. There is always a better way, a way that can start out small and grow to replace any tyranny. That is the main lesson that must be learned about totalitarian structures, and what you must realize to undo the suffering that they are bound to create. Thank you for listening to The Short Forms, a short history of totalitarian structures. Produced February 5th, 2008. The Short Forms. Copyright 2008. Kobe Van Hoos. Some rights reserved.